0: Joining me in the following presentation is my co-host Dr. Robert Schmidt. Rob is the director of Tayu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Many Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we feature a pre-recorded conversation with Henry Schoenfield, ordained minister, spiritual director, and ICF certified professional coach about the arc of his spiritual journey the tension between an inner calling and the outer form that calling may take, and the challenges of inspiring modern American Christian congregations and the possibilities of deep contemplative work on self. Henry Schoenfield is a lifelong spiritual seeker and mystic. He was born into a family of mixed religious and cultural backgrounds, his father's family of English and German-Jewish descent, and his mother's family of Scots-Irish and Cherokee descent. Raised in the Episcopal Church, he was formed and ordained as a Roman Catholic priest. He left the priesthood seeking greater integrity in his life and work as a gay man. This search led him to the United Church of Christ, the liberal Protestant denomination in which he currently serves. All the while, the grounding spiritual relationship in his life has been the experience of the divine in prayer, meditation, and liturgy. He has worked in parishes and congregations, in hospital and hospice spiritual counseling, and clinical education of spiritual care providers at major trauma centers and teaching hospitals in Seattle and New York City. Currently, he serves in interim congregational ministry in Lowell, Massachusetts, while also working with individuals in spiritual direction and coaching, as well as leading workshops and retreats. His joy is to companion others as a teacher and guide through times of disruption and transformation. He's a certified professional coach through the International Coaching Federation and a student of the Fourth Way and Christian Contemplative Path in the lineage of the Reverend Dr. Cynthia Berzolt. Henry Schoenfeld, welcome to the Mystical Positivist. Thank you. It's uh, really such a
1: thrill to, to be here with you all today. Well, thanks so, so much. Uh, we're look,
2: we're uh, we've been anticipating the conversation, and I'm going to begin with our usual uh, first question for a first-time guest, uh, which is to invite you to uh, cast your mind back to youth and childhood, and um, ask if any impressions, any recollections, any memories arise that. Um, in retrospect, you could say prefigured some of the way that your life, um, both on a personal trajectory and uh, uh, also in the, in the various forms of spiritual and religious uh, endeavor that your life later took, if you could say, ah, that was a harbinger, that was, uh, that prefigured what was to come.
1: Yeah. Or well, the first uh, image and impression that comes to me is, uh, as about a ten-year-old, mm-hmm. and being in the Episcopal Church when my family uh, attended it was the first time that that I really was aware of experiencing liturgy as a as kind of an all-encompassing experience, you know, and even beyond the the words that were used or the form that was used. The experience of, uh, of the sacred the experience of God in that space that was otherworldly. You know, I mean, as a, as a child, I was such a fan of science fiction because it took me to a different place. Uh, and yet there I was in that experience of liturgy, um, mm-hmm. in a different place, in a different world, uh, and knew that I wanted just to, embody that place. Uh, and as, as my life and path has unfolded and continues to unfold, it really brings me back to that that liturgical experience uh, as a 10-year-old and wanting to dwell in that space. Hmm. So that's really interesting. I mean, I had, a, I had perhaps
2: an analogous experience when I was like three or four in a Roman Catholic church, but but I want, I'm going to invite you to elaborate a little bit on, on what are their particular features of this otherworldly, um, and how did you, how did you, how do you remember conceiving of it at the time when, when this, uh, um, new experience arose for you?
1: Yeah. I mean, the things that they come up, um, at least, how I might have perceived it at the time, of of the vestments of the actions, you know, none no of those were particular to to that time as a ten year old because I was, you know, I was raised in the Episcopal Church and I remember um, being exposed to to the liturgy probably uh, as young as five or six. Um, <clears throat> but the actions, and, and I particularly uh, remember the compassion of of the priest. Uh, and was very much drawn to that. You know, it was kind of a, it was a love and a, an acceptance that that I didn't necessarily experience anywhere else. Uh, hmm. And and that helped to you know, form an experience of God that was that was compassionate, that was um, attractive uh, to me to want
0: to get to know.
2: Interesting. Thank you.
0: So, how did this um, initial experience then uh, uh, ripen, as it were, and start to guide your the the choices that you made or the movements that you made to move more towards a life dedicated to spirit?
1: Well, I mean, in in really practical ways, to uh, I I wanted to serve as much as I could uh, as as an altar boy or as a acolyte, as called in Episcopal Church. You know, and, uh, and occupy that space as, as much as possible. But it also engendered a, a desire to, uh, about priesthood and what might that look like? Uh, you, you know, and, and it's funny how, how that has continued to unfold throughout my life, you know, because it, it feels like there's a cultic notion of, of who a priest is that is apart from an institutional notion of who priests are. You know, and and it's that cultic notion of of one who stands in the midst of the community, offering prayer and sacrifice for oneself and for the entire community, that is continued to inform who I am. You know, and and to find ways to mediate that 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 are meaningful, both for myself and for those who are in the communities in which I find myself. Um, you know, and, and even though institutions have been um, the vehicle in a way that have allowed me to do that. Um, But it's really more that cultic notion that, that I've followed uh, and and trying to, to, uh, to deepen into the sense of who I feel called to in that more cultic notion of a priest.
0: That's an interesting way of putting it. And I've, I've, I've certainly heard it said, particularly within the context of the Catholic church that once. One is made a priest in a certain sense. There's a certain something that can't be taken away from that, that you can be separated from the institution or no longer function within the institution. But something in the transmission of the priesthood in the Catholic Church is, uh, senior to the institution. And so maybe, maybe you could, you may, is that what you mean? Or is that partly a little bit about the mystery of the occultic nature of the, um, function of the priest?
1: I think that's one way to talk about it. You know, I mean, the uh, the words that are used in the in the Catholic tradition are the indelible mark on the soul. You know, that that change of character, a change of being, that is, that occurs in through ordination. Um, Though, you know, I mean, I experienced that, really kind of in a in more inner way of of raising up who I was. You know, it it goes along with this notion of. That I have of sacraments, that uh, that that sacraments don't impart anything that's wholly extrinsic to who we are, um, but that they recognize a piece, uh, a seed that is already present, and they celebrate that presence, and in celebrating that presence, increase it. Well, in that similar way, I mean, this this indelible mark or the, the cultic notion of priesthood. Um, seems like something that was embedded within me and every experience of liturgy. And then certainly formation as priest and ordination as priest helped to increase in, and to nurture that seed. Um, but it's the thing that, that is already within um, that, that gets, that gets fed.
0: So is that um, in one sense, and I get this flavor from some of your writings that uh, a functioning in this way, your gift to the community is an ongoing testimony or or demonstration of the presence of the divine in all things large and small. And that the priest then, um, or the spiritual director uh, acts as a reminding factor that is constantly calling attention of the people with whom he or she works to, that fact of the presence of the divine.
1: Yeah, well, absolutely. You know, I mean, it's that that God is present. The divine is present in all things, right? And in, in if anything, it, it gives me a vision to note it. I mean, it's not so unlike photography, which is, seems like a wild jump, um, but a photographic eye to be able to see something particular and to capture it. And to share it in a way that folks can see a very particular instance. Well, in the same kind of way, uh, to be able to, to help folks see the action of the, of the divine and really in small and ordinary ways, I think are the most impactful, you know, to be able to develop a vision or slow down enough to see, uh, in, in small ways that are actually quite big, uh, when we can be still and be present with them.
2: So um, I'll just, uh, for, for the sake of listeners who haven't perhaps gone to your uh, personal website, uh th- this uh, feature that you're mentioning about photography is something present there, as well as a blog, et cetera. But um, I just wanted people not to know that that's... Um, that's one of the things that you've developed in your life uh, along the way. But, but let me return to the personal tra- trajectory. So <clears throat> it sounds like you were interested in becoming an acolyte in the Episcopal Church at a young age. Is that, is that what actually uh, took place? And how did that uh, affect you?
1: Yeah, that is what uh, took place. And, uh, you know, it, it helped me have this sense of belonging. Which, you know, I mean, has been kind of a lifelong quest and, and in ways continues to be uh, a lifelong quest. But, but that there was a place where, uh, where who I was, what I had to offer, was received and nurtured and valued. Um, and, uh, and even though my family made many moves uh, in, in my childhood, but there was always an Episcopal church. And It was always, you know, an acolyte program, and it could be transferred from one place to another. And and I immediately had a sense of I belong here, uh, to be able to to serve as as a young person and then, you know, as a young adult uh, as an acolyte and and to to be in that space of mystery uh, and to be kind of have have the front row seat uh, to to what's going on uh, in liturgy.
2: It's interesting because. Uh, um my own experience of becoming a catholic altar boy uh was uh in some ways different and in some ways similar to what you're describing so uh uh my experience was that one of the nuns who was uh who who was a principal teacher in the school uh the uh, parochial school that i was attending one day uh Addressed, you know, the, uh, age class that I was in. And basically she pointed at several different young boys, and I was one of them saying, okay, you're it. And, uh, and, and it, I, I remember acting as if, oh, I didn't like being drafted, but I did like actually doing the, uh, uh service of, of uh and i you know and i even you know so there would there would be three morning masses at uh, six fifteen a m seven and eight fifteen a m and um and I would have to you know on the on the rotation that altar boys do um I would have to serve one or the other and i remember i remember wearing it as a badge of honor that I would have to get up at six a m on a snowy morning. I mean, for the six a.m. mass on a snowy morning, trudge trudge through the uh, um, winter days to uh, um, serve at that mass. But I also felt um, privileged, actually, to do that. And it's and I, it sounds like um, that was not unlike your experience. The, la- the latter part, actually.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. The so you- uh, absolute fortune to be in that space. Mm-hmm. That and said was both both otherworldly and profoundly of this world mm-hmm. at the same time.
0: That's a nice way of putting it. I, I think it's sometimes lost uh, in our more growing more secular society that that space actually can exist within the uh, institutions of the church because. It's you know I was raised uh, sort of loosely as an Episcopal, uh, but not 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 seriously. I think by the time I was the youngest of my family, so by the time I was in my teens, my parents had largely fallen away from regular attendance, and you know still maintained a sort of ceremonial attendance at uh, uh, holy days and things like that. So the church wasn't didn't have that factor, so I always sort of saw it through the lens of sort of suburbia and uh, uh, a imposition of time as opposed to an opportunity for mystery so for so for me, I had to find that space in a completely different uh, realm but it's useful just to recollect that actually there's something there that's something why why uh, churches still exist and what and e- even in our politicized world, where people sometimes take teachings of the church as clubs. Behind that, still is a, a, a something or a, a contact that uh, I think uh, even the reddest of the evangelicals are, are feeling and connected with, and that's partly what they're trying to protect.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like something exists as a possibility, you know, um, and and I, you know. It seems like folks are aware of that of 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 something existing as a possibility and seeking it out and as you say i mean even evangelicals kind of uh strongly guarding it and even folks who don't identify with any religious tradition at all seem to be quite aware of that something existing as a possibility and seeking out all kinds of avenues for it
0: so So the possibility uh, that cannot be named
1: Right. Exactly. Exactly. Let me let me
2: ask you, though, about your your use of the word cultic, because I because I find that interesting. It's not a word you hear um, approvingly used very often uh, in, in these days because it's uh, related, of course, to cult, which is something that. Um, uh, receives a program shall we say but you're but you're using the word in a in a more original form can you talk about that a little a little bit
1: yeah uh, you know and, and as you asked the question the first response that came up was i don't remember when i started using this word hmm. uh, though as i sat with it a little bit longer i do remember um And it was a moment, um, I suppose you could call it a moment of insight in the chapel in the seminary, when one day during Mass, I looked around and said, huh, we're not really doing anything differently than a lot of different folks have done in different ages, in different configurations towards different images of the divine as they saw it, you know, of course we believe this and we believe that it's, you know, transformative somehow, but that we're entering into a similar kind of space that a lot of different people have entered into a lot of different religion, a lot of different traditions have, you know, and so there was something deeper that emerged in that particular mass of what we were doing. You know and and that's where the notion of of the the cultic piece came in for me, and then it just stuck you know that that uh, that I could start to see that who I was and what I was doing as an aspiring priest um, had a resonance across the ages that was much deeper or wider or greater, however you might describe it, than this particular manifestation of Religion and spirituality that 's really
2: interesting um as an archaeologist, I can appreciate <laughs> reaching back uh, uh, or having archaeological training and manifestation i you know um, I think it's a a common feature of the human mind, at least as I see it manifested in others around me and in myself um, to want to connect to something. That has been meaningful throughout the ages, and um, uh, so, th- so that certainly resonates um, in my own experience. And um, uh, explain a little more, though, for for our audience, what because I think a lot of people wouldn't use wouldn't wouldn't be familiar with using the word cultic to describe this connection across time. So if you could elaborate just a little bit on that, that that would be interesting.
1: Well, you know, it it goes back to actually what we were talking about before uh, in terms of the evangelicals, what folks are protecting, seeking sources of meaning, uh, and um, that there is a hunger, I want to say, in the human condition. For that kind of connection, uh, and and especially a connection for something that is bigger, to find ourselves embedded in a much bigger picture, you know. And and to me, that's what that's what this notion of of the the cultic points to. It's actually also what what the notion of liturgy points to, you know, this public celebration that gives our lives orientation, that helps us to understand who we are, why we're here, um, what is ours to do, you know, and not just be recipients of, but be participants in, um, and uh, and ultimately some kind of shape of meaning. Uh, so I don't know if I've wandered away from the question. No, no, no.
2: no. The, uh, uh, what, what's, what was coming up uh, from what you said for me is the – Deepening appreciation in, in my, my own spiritual practice in recent years of the utility of ritual. Mm-hmm. That is, that is the body. Um, I liked the phrase you use embedded in something larger. Mm-hmm. Um, acting in ways that um, invoke that lar- that, that greatness um, larger than larger than our usual mind. Uh, the space that our usual that our usual minds occupy
1: mm-hmm.
2: so um so so this certainly, I was touched by ritual when i when I was a kid I, and i don 't know how 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 often people growing up today have that experience since church membership has drastically declined in the u s uh, even that was happening even earlier in Europe and um and I don't know the situation beyond that really so um so I think that that um the a meditation on ritual on liturgy etc cetera, et cetera, and its uses is an interesting uh, topic
1: oh for sure, for sure, yeah, you know and then you're you're right i mean church um membership and participation declining in America, and and as you say, in Europe before uh, America, and largely for some very good reasons, you know, control, uh, moralism, um, trying to rest or wrestle, I should say, mystery out of the whole experience, right? Because mystery isn't easily controlled. (laughs) It's not easily doled out whatever prescription that, that an authority figure thinks it ought to be uh, somehow it defies that. Uh, and, and unfortunately, it is a situation where the baby's been thrown out with the bathwater, <laughs> you know, that, uh, that that churches are not places where people experience this sort of connection, um, are not schools of love, as as, uh, as Brian McLaren puts it and become places of indoctrination. And so it's fairly easy to shrug off a place of indoctrination.
0: But one one aspect of the cultic that the word calls to mind is, I think, of the mystery cults in the ancient world and the, uh, I guess, the ritual specialist or the priest or the uh, analogy of the priest was... Understood vividly to be a uh, a gateway to the connection of the divine, and I see this in other in, like indigenous traditions and sh- uh, shamanic traditions where the the shaman or the diviner is understood culturally and just vividly viscerally by participants as someone having a objective gateway to the divine and the process of healing or their engagement with the shaman or the diviner is all about, uh, getting that influence more explicitly into one's, uh, daily life. Mm-hmm. And so I can, I can see how, uh, particularly with the, the rituals that are preserved in, uh, particularly I think the Catholic Church or the Eastern Orthodox Church in modern Christianity have a kind of a depth to them still that, that I think people can tune into and to the extent that they as it were have quote unquote faith they give themselves permission to make that journey with the uh, uh with the priest mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah the, uh, the the phrase that was coming up as you were talking there was um, in the world but not of the world you know in and, and fully participating in this life but also i think the thing that uh, i found Enriching in the congregationalist tradition at times anyway, is how it's not just the priest dwelling in that space. I mean, as we see her talking, I am well aware of the smell of, of, um, anointing oil on my hands in a healing service this morning. And in, in a way to kind of invite folks into that, uh, rather than going around the room and anointing everybody, uh, I, passed around the container Mm. and I asked everybody to anoint each other you know and so then making the point at the end of the service that they now all held this fragrance uh, you know and of course Christ meaning anointed one right and they held the fragrance of the anointed one and were going out into their lives and into the world uh, with this fragrance uh, and to take that seriously um you know, and, and and it's it's cool because even folks who I think have no background necessarily of the higher liturgical traditions can connect into that, you know, and, and that visceral sense of the fragrance that they carry with them, um, you know. So that somehow seems to belong in this conversation as well. That uh, that I think that again, people are hungry mm-hmm. for. For that kind of connection
2: i agree but uh, we've we've strayed from your personal trajectory uh, yes 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 and, and as, as 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 has been appropriate uh, uh no no uh, no criticism to any of us uh, implied but uh but i want to get back to um this uh young acolyte uh, mm-hmm. who, who we were last speaking of and you are have already mentioned um seminary. So, uh, can, if you can make that bridge for us, that would be, that would be great.
1: Sure. So uh, like, like many parts of my life, uh, I I found a path and I, then I was trying to fulfill it and then I ended up wandering away from it. So that young acolyte uh, graduated from high school, uh, and, uh, and actually I should say the tumultuous times in the Episcopal church really played in here as well. Mm. You know, at the time, uh, and, and maybe it was growing up in in uh, northern Georgia as I did, that there were two really huge issues going on in the Episcopal Church: the role of women in the Episcopal Church, and the role of uh, lesbian and gay people in the Episcopal Church, and um, and they both just seemed really uh, hard to wrestle with, you know, and especially. Uh, as as a gay man myself, although I didn't realize it at the time. Uh, and so I went away to college and and, and had this, this taste for what I could see as kind of a political fight within the Episcopal Church of the role of folks in life. Um, you know, and so uh, I I ultimately resolved this. Well, I resolved it first off by just taking a break from – organized religion altogether uh and then uh when i came back finding myself in the pew of a roman catholic church as if that was actually going to resolve the uh the two <laughs> <issues>. <laughs> but it did for 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 time um uh, you know and and so so i found myself in that pew and uh and and with a very strong resolve to uh to go into the seminary even even though when I first approached the uh, the diocese in Atlanta about uh, uh about being in formation as a priest I wasn't even catholic um but I was really clear that 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 I wanted to be a priest uh, you know and do what I ever had to do got it so
2: how did that how did that uh, were you were were you received with open arms and have in and having you know that ambition expressed but what was what was the re, uh, the response
1: well, I would say there was tenuously open arms uh, i mean they, they didn't tell me to to, to go away um, <laughs> <laughs> but but it was it was the sort of thing I was like, okay, well, uh let's take one step at a time, and first, you need to be Catholic um you know and and so i think the the process was set out in front of me and it was clear that that this would take a number of years uh and you know that was that was fine with me that 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 i had enough of a uh of a sense of this is what was right for me that you know going through the process be, to become catholic spending uh, an extra year in uh, working in a parish before going to the seminary. Uh, Doing uh, philosophy studies in uh, in the seminary, even though I I had done philosophy studies in college, all of that stuff. And, you know, um, it it was kind of the attitude of like, well, uh, if this is what you want to do, you know, prove it. And, you know, with enough sticking around and doing the things that I was asked to do, uh, the reception became less tenuous, at least
2: so your your ambition was to be a diocesan uh, um, and just for listeners who may not understand in the Catholic Church, the diocese is the uh, um, uh, the local um, geographic um, organization of uh, churches and parishes and practitioners um, as opposed to you could have been a uh, priest in a particular religious order.
1: Yes, though I wasn't savvy enough about the Catholic structure at the time to even know that this difference existed, mm. much less what it was. I mean, I really didn't know what I was signing up for in a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, diocesan, studying to be a diocesan priest meaning that I would be assigned to to parish work um, and be kind of in one uh, local church, you know, one area for the rest of my life, I, I had no clue that that's actually what I was signing up for. I was mm-hmm. wanting to be a priest. I didn't, you know, I didn't know what the structures were, what the options were. Uh, and, and I also didn't really uh, have a clear sense of the depth of the, the spiritual traditions within Roman Catholicism either. You know, uh, again, kind of a, um, a pattern that has played out in my life of just sort of rushing in and, and, figuring out the details as I go. Uh, but, uh, so, uh, yeah, I had no clue, uh, about diocesan priesthood. Well, uh, but
2: so that's interesting to me, uh, uh that you had no, no uh, sense of, uh, some of the, uh, some of the particular religious orders and their specialities, I guess you might say, uh, mm-hmm. um, Um, And as you became aware of that, how did that how did that land for you?
1: Well, there were a couple of traditions uh, and particularly the um, the Jesuits that spoke deeply to me, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, in learning about uh, Ignatian spirituality, Ignatius Loyola and and the spiritual exercises of Ignatius, uh, which I. Went through while I was in the seminary and still was one of the most transformative spiritual experiences of my life uh, to to go through the the exercises. And for a while, thinking, well, well, maybe I should maybe I should actually be a Jesuit. Maybe I should be in a religious community, Um, you know, and, and looking back maybe I should have been. Uh, I, maybe I would still be a priest for for better or worse uh, were I in a religious community. Um, but for whatever reason at the time, it didn't seem like the path to actually take. Um, okay. Yeah. And maybe maybe it was just that, that changing the, tra- the trajectory at the time that I became aware of the possibility. mm mm-hmm seemed to
0: be more daunting than just staying where I was. Okay. So, so then, and I don't know as much about uh, the uh, arc of seminary as you both do, but does that mean then that out of this, as you're training, you're basically training to be a diocesan uh, priest, and on ordination you would be assigned to a uh, uh, diocese and a, and a, a church to, uh, from which to minister? Correct. So how did that, so just advancing the story forward then, uh, uh, with the ordination and the early work with the, uh, uh, with the uh, diocese, how did that unfold for you?
1: Yeah, so this is such a really interesting story. Is There are two ordinations in the Roman tradition. The first one is ordained a deacon and serves as a deacon for a period of time, uh, often at least a year. And then one is ordained a priest. And and just talking about the inner experience, because I mentioned the spiritual exercises of Ignatius Loyola. Well, the format of that uh, retreat uh, that I participated in was a nine-month format. And it was right up, basically, leading to my ordination as a deacon. And I remember... uh, Facing ordination with this sense of constriction mm-hmm. of kind of a birth canal experience, and this is the way that my spiritual director and I helped to, to talk about it was was that that I was in a birth canal, and yet on the other side of that, you know, once I still said yes to it, uh, the ordination liturgy itself was uh, was a peak experience. And then the ministry that flowed out of it was was really life-giving. So then uh, a year or so later, I was starting to have some of the similar experiences leading up to ordination uh, as a priest. But the result was quite different. Now, just to contextualize this a little bit, I was uh, ordained a deacon in two thousand. One uh, April of 2001 and a priest in June of 2002 and what happened in the spring or I should say late winter of 2002 had a huge impact here and that was the sexual abuse crisis uh, that came back up in the Catholic Church Hmm. and so what happened overnight seemingly was that there was this growing kind of homophobic voice within the seminary Mm. uh, before this. But there was also really place of welcome for for gay men, you know, within some confines. They didn't really want us to be terribly out or, you know, (laughs) spreading our stories too much, but it was still welcome. It was still nurtured. Mm. And then when the abuse crisis hit, that shifted to gay men were suddenly scapegoated. And especially gay men who would, uh, as the Pope at the time would say, ego centonic, meaning I'm accepting being a gay man, and that's just part of who I am. Those people were said, you can't be a priest, whereas if somebody was saying, I'm a gay man, but I don't like it, and I'm struggling against it, they could be priests. Now, just pause for a moment and consider how... What an interesting situation that was.
0: But I want to be clear about one point is, is even in a context of a nurturing attitude towards uh, being a gay man, there would still be an expectation of celibacy as a, uh, so it's not, it's, it's, (laughs) it's, the distinction that you're drawing is not that one is actively out and sexually active. It's one is still celibate in the same sense that a, heterosexual uh, uh, priest would be celibate, so there's still that sort of sacrifice or that turning of attention away from the bodily, worldly, mm-hmm. and yet yeah, now you're just drawing a distinction that with even within that, once you accept that, then there's this nurture One can be nurturing about uh, being gay and a and accepted, or one can be at war with that as a that that that's a aberration.
1: Right. Yes. 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 And so, so this, this comes up to, uh, the ordination, uh, liturgy, um, that, uh, for priesthood that shortly before I was ordained a priest, 20 minutes before I was ordained a priest, uh, the bishop called me in and said, so I hear rumors that you're practicing homosexual. Is this true? Um, well, it was something that I wrestled with. You know what does being a gay man mean? Um, how can I have integrity as it uh, as a gay man in ministry? Um, and it was also really clear to me that 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 answer that question had one right answer. Uh, and so either I go back to the church and I explain to all of my family why I'm not getting ordained,
0: <laughs> right?
1: Or I give him the answer that he wants and I go through with it.
0: But just to be clear, his understanding of practicing meant that you were self-accepting as opposed to sexually active. Is that correct? Correct. I mean, did correct. he understand? Did he did he understand it that way? I mean, because if no, someone, uh, <laughs> I mean, because practicing practicing certainly implies a certain kind of uh, activity. Right, right,
1: right. No, I don't think that, that that he he understood it in in a whole kind of human sort of way and what was interesting about it was there was the this this meeting of the bishops in dallas to deal with how to respond to the to the abuse crisis uh and what the bishops couldn't really see was that the crisis was as much uh one of leadership and the abuse of power uh on the level of the episcopacy as it was on the way that that priests were acting out uh you know and and so he cited the uh, the Dallas meeting in in this confrontation and the irony was that that he in that moment was abusing his power with me in exactly the same way that bishops were abusing their power with priests in in, in parishes that led to the whole crisis in the first place um you know and so all of this just basically meant that even in ordination this quest into the cultic understanding of priests that, that that I felt was not really realized, Um, you know, and, and, and my relationship with the Roman church was, um, well, I'll just return to the word tenuous uh, at at best, even, even on the other side of being ordained a priest.
0: Well, yeah, because it sounds from what you've described, you were, you were looking for a, Priestly function and not a uh, institution with a political uh, agenda.
1: That's fair. Yeah,
2: yeah. But it's a, a, a your accounting of of your experience in terms of twenty minutes before this uh, uh, this major step, um, uh, where you're where you're interrogated in this way. Um, by an authority, an authority figure is um, uh, is a is a really <laughs> vivid example of the sort of effects of a certain idea of the blend of the supposed blending of authority with um, with the true mission of priesthood is really is really uh telling to me i've never had had anyone i've never heard anyone speak about having this sort of this sort of um uh expression of authority um uh delivered with the kind of uh, gravity and with the timing, sort of timing that you're that you're describing, it's 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 rem- it's remarkable actually. And um, so, that comment as, uh, aside, how did you then proceed, having gone through with um, the ceremony? Yeah, and and uh, which it sounds like the your your liturgical experience was very different there than it was as uh, becoming a deacon um, quite understandably.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: So, yeah.
1: um, Yeah, And, and so, so I'd like to respond to that actually in two ways, you know, because how I responded in the moment and how I, how I respond to that now looking back, mm -hmm. you know, because in the moment I just, I went through with things. I, uh, I uh, worked in the parish, I bore a lot of resentment uh, towards the bishop for a while um, before finally confronting him and, you know, and, and trying to, to figure out how he could remain uh, a priest uh, and, uh, you know, went off on hospital chaplaincy and, and did all kinds of other stuff. I mean, it was a moment that, 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 uh, that there was a, a new trajectory was launched from that. Uh, and, and now also looking back, and even as you mentioned the word authority, what I realized was that um, in that was a clash of outer authority and inner authority. Uh, you know, and, and, and maybe it really helped me to seek real inner authority rather than authority that is imposed from above. Um, you know, because there was something about that that seemed fundamentally if I can use the word ironically disordered about the <laughs> about the way that that authority was used there you know uh and and even the the notion of obedience you know i uh, this may be somewhat of a tangent but uh, the, the promise of obedience that that the priests make in in bishops of this bishop acted like it was Obedience meant that I was going to do what he said, but that's not actually what obedience means. It means that we're going to listen to the prompting of the Holy Spirit, you know. <laughs> and so, so this actually helped to break free the possibility again of an inner authority, of an inner obedience, of a deeper listening mm-hmm. and a deeper following.
2: Mm. that's one that's that's wonderful i i, I really appreciate that your uh the the distinction that you're making and by the way for for listeners who don't know um the word uh, that uh, you used ironically disordered um is ironic because that is the accusation if you will about um uh, uh lesbians and gay uh, gay men people people having um same sex uh, s- sexual experience um they were accused by the church of being disordered or or designated as being disordered in nature so um so that's an interesting it seems to me part of part of this and i and and i think i want i mean i want to say that that um the human tendency towards hierarchy hierarchical s- social structures. Is pretty deep, you know, and and when it when it acquires. It seems to me that when it acquires the um, patina of of age, you know, hundreds or even thousands of years, um, it can be it can be experienced as some as an obstacle to the kind of uh, uh, um, experience of obedience, the prompting of the Holy Spirit, as you put it, um, uh, very differently um, when it is, as you were saying in your experience, imposed, in this case, by the uh, uh, diocesan bishop. So... um, it's uh, it it makes sense that you have, in retrospect, formulated a, a this this um, quite clearly expressed distinction mm-hmm. about different kinds of authority and where it comes from, and how and how we honor authority appropriately and resist it um, when appropriate as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Because as you were saying that what occurred to me was when we just appeal to outer authority, when we just follow outer authority, it's a really sneaky way to
0: avoid doing our inner work. <laughs> yeah. That's true in all traditions.
2: Yeah. That's true, but the but but the gravity of of this uh <clears throat> of this very powerful institution, you know, ups the stakes in a lot of ways for, for individuals. Or it
0: research. sure does. I mean, yeah. for what, a billion followers worldwide. Yeah. Right. But, but the, you know, the, what's oh, interesting in terms of your personal story is that someone at that crossroads, at least I imagine, and I've certainly seen testimony of this and, uh, um, from people who face similar challenges within the the structure of the catholic church would i guess i want to say throw the baby out with the bath water i mean they, they, it's like you you reject the the church as a, a an authority but don't make that leap to a recognition of a divine inner authority that is accessible and and it and I think it maybe it is like what you're saying is that the you know one a a, uh, a uh, an acceptance of authority without doing the inner work is a a way of avoidance a rejection of a uh, of authority without doing the inner work is another way of avoidance and uh, what you are describing for us which is very interesting is a third way which is a recognition of that the the relative nature of the outer authority and the primary nature of the inner authority.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I, I want to be clear here that, that, that it's not like I, I went from one place to another without any space in between.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I understand. You did. You did say earlier I, that I this can't. is for the benefit of hindsight. I
1: don't, I don't know. I I couldn't. Ama-
2: I couldn't imagine anyone doing that. So uh, so I, did yeah, project I it onto your experience.
1: I I would be highly suspicious of anyone who claimed to have been able to do that anyway. Right. Yeah. Right.
2: We'll talk about that a little a little bit then. I mean, how how did this um, obviously. Conflict. Um, uh, how did how did um, how did you experience that conflict? And over what what span of time did you were you able to achieve the um, what you've described, which is not not um, not frequently articulated, I th- I think, enough mm. in, in in many traditions
1: yeah well the the first part of the question i think is the easiest part about how i experienced the conflict um it it was simply one that that over time became less and less tolerable to hold um you know i mean i remember uh as a parish priest uh acting out in, in in a lot of different ways that uh that we don't necessarily need to get into in this conversation, um, but but ways to try to deal with um, the disillusionment, um, the anger that that I was that I was experiencing, you know. And so I thought, well, parish ministry doesn't seem to be the place. How can I remain a priest and find something else to do? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that was at least step one to this larger resolution, uh, and 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 that took place by moving from Atlanta to Seattle uh, to do a hospital residency, mm. um, and uh, you know Atlanta and Seattle are not only as about as far geographically as one can go in the continental United States. Um, but especially in the early 2000s, we're also about as far as you could go in every other cultural sense, uh, you know, from, from the South to the Pacific Northwest. And, you know, and that was one, one attempt to, to make, to quote unquote make priesthood work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I learned a lot and I had such a, an incredible experience in in Seattle and, and working at a, a regional trauma center and um, and just the richness of, of that experience, but ultimately that wasn't going to work either, you know. And uh, and flash forward from that was two thousand four to two thousand seven, taking a leave of absence from the priesthood uh, and doing something completely different. Um, so moving back east from Seattle uh, in 2007 to New York City and going into a, a program for uh, in culinary school with this fanciful notion of, of being a private chef. Um,
2: well, you say, was, fa- you say fanciful, but I'm, I'm wondering why you, why you use that term.
1: Well, I, part of the reason I use that term is by this point, I'm in my late 30s. And most people in professional kitchens are considerably younger than that mm-hmm. uh, and have more energy and in and, uh, and are devoting everything that they have to it um, and that's not you know in hindsight that's not where I was mm-hmm. you know this was was functionally a sabbatical uh, and that's exactly the way that it did end up working you know as i uh was working in the the food industry in New York City for uh Probably a year altogether uh from the time that I landed there to go to the culinary school until i uh ended up as a hospice chaplain um, hmm. but but that was all part of this coming to terms with uh with outer and inner authority as as we've been talking mm-hmm. about it and even then you know I mean that was still um, the beginning of the path
2: uh well, talk about the, the. It's interesting. I mean, I, I have I have friends who have taken hospice uh, chaplain training, and um, I, so I have a, a slight familiarity with it. But but I think that that in itself is an interesting role uh, to talk about here. Um, so so if you will uh, describe how that how that uh, how that landed for you.
1: Yeah. Well, I'll say. First, it seemed like sheer luck that I got this an in interview, much less a job um, but the 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 work of being with people at end of life was very much connected to my hospital experience in Seattle mm. when I was uh, a chaplain in five different intensive care units in the emergency department as a major hospital and so end of life was was a space that I was. Uh, with people, uh, with families, um, but in a much kind of more sudden, starker way. Uh, Hospice, on the other hand, was kind of a delight. Not kind of, it was a delight to to be able to to discover and to discover this space where I could companion folks through, we might say, (laughs) a critical part of life. you know, and, and to to help help people resolve what they needed to resolve or not. Um, and either way, I had this luxury of of learning the history of New York City through the folks who lived it, mm-hmm. um, of walking with people and, and helping them to to to, uh, to do work of life completion if they wanted to. Or if they didn't want to, to, to be able to say that's okay. Here's my card. Call me if you do. Um, you know, and, and it fit my desire for intensity uh, and and to to really be in a potent place with folks. So especially the time when I when I got to hospice in 2008, I think it was right about the time that Medicare. Regulations took over hospice, so it was still kind of the grassroots and uh, outside of uh, the uh, medical establishment uh, as it had been envisioned. Uh, And so it was it was a wonderful fit uh, for for quite some time. Hmm. So um,
2: uh, implied in what you just said is that it may not only have been the. Companioning those who were about to transition, but also companioning the friends, family, uh, loved ones of that of of whoever uh, was going through that transition, and and how how did that? Um, I mean, was that all of a piece? The whole the the whole social fabric around a person in hospice care or was was did did you did you experience it, it ha- as having um, differing elements if you will
1: yeah no I always thought about patients, family, and staff as being a whole you know, and that that, that as as a chaplain or spiritual care counselor uh my charge was to care for the whole system you mm-hmm. know and and you know one part or the other might need the, the bulk of my attention in any given situation, mm-hmm. but it was a whole constellation that, that, that I got to care for. Uh, you know, and, and, and also I should say that, that as you asked that question, what occurred to me was that, yes, I was companioning these folks through their kind of death and whatever comes beyond that transition. But at the same time, there was this very similar process going on within me. Mm. You know, that, mm. that, that, that that there was a whole other death and uh, and relinquishing and, and being born into something new that was within me that I wasn't really aware of at the time. But wow. looking back, it's pretty clear.
0: Well, well that's, that's hey, pretty that, darn interesting again. Yeah, that is interesting. I, I, and I, you know, the, what I wanted to ask about the hospice work is that um, – there's something about the limbic space of someone who is uh, nearing death and uh, and dying, both the space before and the space immediately after, that feels to me like it touches onto this the, this mystery that uh, is so alive in your description of your early resonance with uh, liturgy and. I, I can't help but think that just being having the privilege of being present for people like that uh awakens that flame in such a pure form that it, that is that all institutions sort of fall away in comparison. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean the
1: privilege of being present with somebody through their physical death. Um being present with families as their loved one has died. Uh, and, and yeah, that the, the aspect of mystery that it's touched upon in those moments that just, it goes beyond words, um, you know, and, and to think of the, the, you know, some of the particular people who, uh, who I had the, the privilege to be able to companion through that transition, um. It's really awesome, and I, I mean that in the in the, the true sense of the word. Yeah. Well, I, I,
2: it also occurred to me that um, uh, that this is the same calling as um, you were describing with the word cultic, and uh, in the in the midst of ritual, and I'm wonder, and I and I guess although. The word ritual conjures up ceremonies that are repeated <laughs> uh, it's, it also strikes me that that the role you're descri- the chaplain role that you're describing hospice chaplain role um, is one that um, that has a um, that calls to the inner work of the priest slash chaplain uh, to bring the same appreciation of mystery into the body into your body into the body of those that you're sharing space with um in the same way that it that that ideally the um liturgical um call for the priest is meant to bring Mm-hmm. to the community more widely.
1: Does that mm-hmm. make sense to you? Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, the word into the body, right, and, and then brings me back to the embodiment, right? You know, and, and all the same things, that, that, that this mystery is one that, that that we experience here, you know, in this, in this physical body, uh, that is, that goes beyond it, but that is entered into precisely through it, you know, and through all of our humanness, um, which I think is a missing element sometimes. But then, you know, there are moments that, that, that peace can't be denied, or at least it can't be denied as easily. And in, in the passage from this life, to the next whatever that might be is certainly one of those moments
2: yeah it's got a an <laughs> a necessary urgency that going to church on sunday doesn't
0: necessarily have
1: absolutely absolutely
0: so from this uh, uh, hospice work then how, how did the arc continue so the hospice agency that
1: i was working with opened an inpatient unit, uh, in Bellevue, uh, hospital center in New York city. Uh, and so I was kind of came in from the community into Bellevue as the, the chaplain for their inpatient unit. And, uh, and, and that lasted a very short period of time for, for a number of reasons. Um, but, uh, that ended up, I was still at Bellevue and, and uh, interested in, uh, training for, uh, clinical education for chaplains. And so I trained there at Bellevue for, uh, for a year or so, uh, after the hospice chapter ended and, um, just a brief chapter though. It's still one of the places that I've had the privilege to work that has a part of my heart because um, Bellevue is such a crazy place. Um, and naked humanity on display all the time well, um,
2: I think um, there's more to your story, to your personal trajectory, uh, um, uh, and we're getting closer to the present day but but not that not there yet um, and 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 i'll ju- I just want to say that that um, this is one of the richer um, trajectories that we've had the uh, privilege to have on our show because, um, the, um, and this is a lead into inviting you to continue talking about, uh, your, uh, uh, your continuing work because, because it's clear that you're going through transitions as you, um, are going through the outer transitions, there there must have been um, from everything we know, from what you've said so far, inner uh, transitions mm-hmm. happening for you. So I invite you to to frame it that way if you if you like, um, but through the through the exterior as well.
1: Yeah. No. Absolutely. So what was um, what was going on inside through all of this? First was the denominational shift. You know, when I when I moved to New York City, I was leaving the Roman Catholic priesthood, uh, leave of absence, uh, and wasn't totally sure, you know, where I would end up. Uh, and I ended up in uh, in a wonderful congregation of the United Church of Christ in New York City, uh, Judson Memorial Church, which is a really strong. History of activism, social justice. And so, uh, so I found myself in, in that pew, um, both literally and metaphorically, uh, and considering a new denominational home, which I suppose was going to have to happen if I was going to continue doing spiritual work in, in an institutional way. Uh, and, and, and found the, the UCC, in, in many ways uh, a um, a very compatible place to uh, to to call home uh, so I came into the to the UCC as a you know full minister and had uh, faculties as we would call it in the Roman church uh, here it's called uh, ministerial standing uh, which was made relatively easy because of my uh, chaplain work. Uh, Though it was also pretty much right around the time of Bellevue that I was beginning to notice what was missing uh, in the UCC, at least in my experience of it, uh, was the inner work. Mm-hmm. And so it was right about this time that that I found uh, insight meditation in uh, Theravada Buddhism. Uh, and okay. was really kind of you know the aphorism of when the student is ready the teacher appears uh well that was certainly true in my case that that uh that when i started looking for a a meditation community uh the the teacher showed up and i really didn't have a a notion of seeking out you know the different kind of traditions within buddhism or different teachers it was just when I was looking, there it was. There was the community. There was the, the lineage. There was the teacher that was right in front of me.
2: And what was that? And who was that? Or what was that lineage? The well, it's, a
1: Thai, yeah, it's the Thai forest tradition uh, within uh, Theravada Buddhism. Um, and a teacher in the name of Peter Duvenin, um who is uh, at the time, and, and perhaps still is, one of Tanisarabhiko's uh, students um, who you know, has been quite influential in Theravada Buddhism in, in the United States. So, uh, so the downtown meditation community and, and, and learning really basic um, steps, you know, and it was one of the things that I really appreciated about about studying uh, breath meditation and, and Theravada Buddhism that, that, that it, was, it was presented in a really systematic way. You know, here are mm-hmm. the steps of breath meditation. Here are the steps of mindfulness of thought. Here's the steps of mindfulness, you know, of, of speech. And, you know, in, in going through these classes over a period of three or four years that uh, that provided the inner work that I wasn't getting at the time uh, in, in the UCC. Uh, and so it was a great kind of companion piece to the social justice part that that uh, that the Congregation, I was a member of, and you know how these two um, inner and outer, uh, active contemplative parts were uh, were speaking to each other as a parts, two parts of a necessary whole.
0: It's an interesting contrast that you draw. That uh, reminds me of a, a friend of ours who spent quite a long time in his journey uh, coming out of zen buddhism but ultimately spent time in the quaker tradition and what attracted him in the quaker tradition was the history of quietism where there's some very precise steps for cultivating inner silence so that the a different a a different voiceless voice can be heard and yet what ultimately was unsettling or not satisfying for him, uh, was that the center of gravity of the, a lot of the meetings that he attended, at least in this area, were, uh, had that more political tinge or that social justice tinge, which was not what he was looking for at all. I mean, he, he was, he was more centered on the contemplative aspect or the quietest aspect. And it's an interesting point that you raise because it's like, The hunger for Eastern spiritual traditions often has come out of our society having lost that contemplative core in our religious uh, practices. And I I, I kind of feel like Christianity across the uh, U.S. would be far more vital if there was more of that more actively there. But somehow uh, we lost that thread. And uh, there's probably a whole different conversation of how that thread got lost, but it, it, I, I feel like that's that's you're kind of pointing to that a little bit and it's interesting how you you were able to bridge that gap by kind of fusing again, not throwing away something, but actually augmenting or adding to something by bringing in this contemplative this rigorous contemplative practice to augment your journey through uh the, the Christian church. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so then, with this, w- w- bridging this gap then, I guess the, uh, both in terms of your, you know, personal history, in terms of w- w- what came out of that, uh, uh, on the, uh, on the outer side, but to Rob's question, w- how did this action of like this inner work, uh, with all, all with all the, unresolved things previously with the, with your arc to the catholic church how, how did this what was it, how, what did the resolution look like both outside and inside
1: hmm. well, That's a really great question uh, i mean something tells me that that <laughs> that resolution is still an ongoing process sure i mean you, you know because ultimately I found that period of of really diving deeply into Theravada to be another transitional period you know I mean it continues to inform who I am today and some of these practices continue some of the practices continue to inform who I am today though they also reminded me of Precisely what you're just talking about, the thread of contemplative Christianity that has been dropped. And somewhere along the line, I remembered oh, that's right. There was a whole piece of this that when I left the priesthood, when I left the Catholic tradition, I also left behind a part that has nothing to do with the institution, other than the institution being the container to transmit it. It has nothing to do with the institution. You know, and reawakening this uh, contemplative Christian piece that might be the vehicle of the resolution that you speak of, at least for me, you know, because then I could bring, bring back the whole history, you know. And, and, and even the love, I mean, while, while the Roman tradition was not my native tradition, I still deeply love it. I, I, I deeply revere it, you know. I mean, uh, and uh, and and so to remind myself or to be reminded that there is this inner working within Christianity, and that in fact the teachings of Jesus can't really be complete without both, without the inner and the outer, and the ways that we get caught uh, in just focusing on one or the other, you know. Being solipsistic or angry, uh, for example, um, and not being whole people, you know. And so that seems like the the, the resolution that's uh, ongoing work, uh, and, and really kind of brings us closer to to where things are now, of um, of attending to to the the practices and, and the the contemplative piece within. Mm-hmm within my native tradition of Christianity. So,
2: um, Christianity has been fractured for a long time. Um, and, you know, there are various (laughs) points of fracture, um, along the way. So, so in the United Church of Christ now, um, as I understand it, um, have you have you um does the inner work involve holding the whole that remains fractured but nevertheless has a has relational um connections within that whole is that is that is that a is that something that that you can i mean i'm speaking here for myself as well because mm-hmm. even though even though formally i put aside um you know roman catholic practice it deeply informs you know how i um appreciated and developed my own a separate fourth way practice mm-hmm. over the, over over many decades now and i'm wondering I'm wondering if if the uh, experience of ministering to uh, the United Church of Christ congregations that I think you've worked with is it is it plural? I think it is mm-hmm. yeah um, uh, how that may have contributed to being able to hold as one in your inner work I mean, 'm talking about something very elusive here, it seems to me yeah
1: well and and you know I'm reminded of a of a line i can 't remember who said uh, that that uh, human beings are the creatures who are forever almost in it <laughs> <laughs> you know and and I mean i the work in congregations. Within the United Church of Christ have been satisfying in some ways and not completely in others mm-hmm. you know and I want to be respectful to the denomination because there there are just some really wonderful gifts about the denomination yeah. you know and and about the social justice work that the 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 United Church of Christ has done that have had really clear impacts in the world uh and 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 so there's none of it that that i want to uh to again throw out this baby with the bath water mm-hmm. um though there is also this inner peace that i hunger to attend to both for myself and with other people that have struggled to really find um Folks who can hear, mm-hmm. yeah, what I'm wanting to offer, who can receive the experience and the teachings that 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 want to come through. Um,
2: so that's interesting because it it once again reminds me of the, the friend that Stuart, a friend of ours that Stuart referred to a moment ago, who ultimately left the uh, quaker tradition because um the, the the fundamental holding of silence was the key for him but um, um but the failure to value it by other folks in that tradition that that inner that inner work was something mm-hmm. very very frustrating for him.
0: Yeah, and I want to give a more specific example of of what you're talking about where he introduced or what he suggested with his meeting was to have a meeting for silence. So normally in a Quaker meeting, people sit until the spirit moves them. The challenge with that for contemporary audiences without any sort of inner discipline of the sort that you might find as you described with the the possum of work is that it's hard to distinguish between a deep inner arising versus a formatory uh, uh expression from the level of personality and so Happens then is if someone's got to be in their bonnet about the latest political, um, you know, crisis, that's what comes up in the meeting. So what our friend was suggesting was to have as an alternative, not a, not a substitute, but as a an additional meeting, a supplement, a, yeah, a meeting, meeting for silence, where the intent was to be silent hmm. together and not hmm. not to give voice to that silence. And there were some for. There were some people who really liked that or like that was a missing piece for them, but, uh, largely there was a negative reaction because people felt like it would undermine the, uh, the normal meeting or somehow yeah. take something away. And so there was resistance to it. And ultimately it didn't become a thing, even though by design it's doing exactly what we're talking about, which is to provide a contemplative, nonverbal Experiential dimension to the um, practice. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and as you say that, what what comes up? It's really challenging to inculcate um, contemplative practices. I think are relatively easy to teach to people who are open to learning practices. The harder part is to stir hunger. (laughs) Why would people be interested in these practices in the first place? What does this have to do with their lives? What does it have to do with anything? What does it have to do with the teachings of Jesus? That's actually an easier question to answer. Um, But what does it have to do with who they are and how they move through the world?
0: I think that's a it's a great way in which you are framing the question because that question comes up for, uh, many groups of practitioners. Um, it's a, a question that comes up, uh, with a community of, uh, senior fourth way, uh, practitioners that, uh, and that we communicate with, like, how do you stir hunger in a younger generation? Mm-hmm. What, I, you know, and, you know, people will brainstorm and they'll think about things like, "Oh, you need to express you need to express things in the conventional idiom, like lots of YouTube videos and things like that." But, but I'm I'm a little skeptical myself because that hunger is something that is uh, heartfelt, and there's, mm-hmm. a need, there's a need there, and I don't I don't know the answer to that right now. I mean, I I, I don't know whether
2: well we have a we have a, a now deceased friend who who founded a spiritual community and what he, one way that I understood him to address this issue, uh, was that he wanted his community to, to, um, uh, help to create what he called a culture of enlightenment. And he would, he would, uh, refer to Tibetan culture as one where, um, At least ideally, there would be an appreciation among the general population of the utility of inner work, even if individuals are not drawn to it. Hmm. And I think that's a, uh, uh, I think, I think that's part of, I mean, I'm, I'm, and I'm asking you your, your response here. I'm wondering if that isn't part of the, the problem with contemporary christianity at least in the united states um that that um there's there's no you know you you, you referenced earlier in the conversation that there are these traditions embedded within catholicism roman catholicism which um which maintain for small numbers of of, of, of practitioners um, a kind of inner work, but I don't think they get um, they they become largely um, invisible somehow over time. So I'm wondering if that if 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 there's a way to rectify that.
1: Yeah, you know somehow the story from um, Vipassana about the blind turtle at the bottom of the ocean is coming up here. Um, You know, the the story goes that there's a blind turtle at the bottom of the ocean that comes to the surface uh, every hundred years or so, and that uh, that a piece of driftwood is floating on the surface of the ocean, uh, and the blind turtle is with a hole in the center. And the blind turtle is approaching the piece of driftwood. And the Buddha asks his students, what do you suppose the chances are of this blind turtle at the bottom of the ocean who only surfaces every hundred years for his head to surface through the hole in this piece of driftwood? And the students are, well, that's, that's impossible, teacher. And he says something to the effect of, well, even if the turtle does come up through the hole, the chances of being born human are even less, (laughs) you know, and, and, and this is, I think one of those missing pieces that we have a role to play, you know, that precisely to the questions I was asking before about what difference does it make? Well, it does make a difference, you know, that, that, that we have a cosmic role to play. And that's really hard. You know, especially in in a world of fractured community, in a world of social media, in a world of just allowing personality and, and emotion to 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 drag us here and there and everywhere in between, to say that we actually have a role to play in all of this, um, and I don't know. I don't know if that would help to awaken the hunger um, it can't hurt
0: yeah it can't hurt I mean certainly a vision of a cosmology that uh places has some coherence in terms of our role, our possibilities that. That's a little more imaginative than the uh, cosmology that scientism presents right now, and more nuanced, perhaps, than the cosmology that uh, folk versions of Christianity present um, mm-hmm. would be helpful.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But that hunger question is still—I uh, mean, I, I, I do feel like there's an emergent, an emergence of a, a greater recognition of that. I feel like a lot of the restlessness that we feel in our current society that's expressed in sometimes in the sort of uh, anger and violence and polarization, but that restlessness, I think, is coming from a frustration that the solutions that we thought would work to distract us don't seem to be distracting us in the ways that uh, uh, leave us in peace. Mm-hmm. And so, so people are looking for something, and, uh, but it doesn't feel, uh, coate or, uh, coordinated at this point. It just feels, it feels like a kind of, it's a little bit like the blind turtle, uh, uh, uh swimming and, uh, feeling all these currents and not really seeing where the light is.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, I think this is a point in the conversation where I can invite you to talk about your engagement with fourth way practices and ideas, because, um, the, um, your mention uh, a moment ago of the role that, that human beings have a role to play in the universe mm-hmm. is definitely, definitely resonant of, of of the fourth way. And perhaps you can describe how you've engaged with and um, articulated some of that um, in your own in your own work.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and I have to recognize that the, the connecting piece here, from contemplative Christianity to the Fourth Way, uh, has come through the teachings of uh, of Cynthia Bourgeau. You know, because you really helped to connect those pieces for me. And, you know, and just now as, as you're talking about everything that's disintegrating, I was thinking of the arising of a new structure of consciousness uh, that that Gene Gebser would, would point to. Um, and all of these things helped to lead me to fourth-way teachings because, you know, it, it was another thing that, that I was largely unaware of. Until until I came into contact through with Cynthia with uh, with the Enneagram of Personality as as is uh, taught by Russ Hudson, um, and ultimately through the movements, you know, and the, the Khrushchev movements, and um, having experienced a, a, a movements gathering before I really knew what I was getting myself into, uh, and there's, and that, there's I,
2: that there's that tendency of yours to, uh, to rush in. <laughs>
1: Where, yes. where, where fools fear to tread, <laughs> <laughs> yes, or, or maybe where fools rush into. Um, but yeah, absolutely, you know, and and uh, and finding myself on a movement's floor and finding a connection to my body and to sensation that I never knew of before. I remember asking Russ Hudson a question in class once about walking the labyrinth because I had this experience of walking the labyrinth. And, and when I got done feeling sensation in my body, like I'd never felt before. And I said, so you mean that was always there and his response, uh, well, rumor has it, you know, and, and so the awakening of sensation and the awakening of this greater purpose that, uh, that, that, uh, I found, you know, to some responses to that in the Fourth Way teachings, you know, and I still think of myself as, as a relatively newcomer to it. Um, though the more that I explore, uh, through the movements and, and, and through some of the, the primary concepts of, uh, of Gurdjieff, the, the more that I see that there's something really there that, that speaks to the inner, inner work of Christianity that speaks to the role that humans have to play. That we're not, as one of my friends on Facebook put it the other day, that, that, you know, once a human infestation uh, is cleared from the planet, then perhaps the earth can return to its natural balance. And it's like, well, that presumes that we don't have a part to play.
0: Right.
1: And we absolutely do have a part to play and that we have a greater responsibility
0: yeah, it's, it's uh, you probably run across the expression that Gurdjieff sometimes described his work as esoteric Christianity. And because it was framed for a... It was interesting that the, the teaching was articulated for an audience that was in the midst of the kind of popular 19th century scientism. So everything had to be scientific. And yet... He made alive, or was able to bring forth a vision that also had this deep, deep connection to the divine, and systematized it in a way so that it could be understood by an intellectual mind that uh, viewed the world through a uh, lens of uh, scientific cause and effect. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> so it was, it was very—I think it was very effective in that way. But and it, it's a—it's a very powerful vision and and there's this you know the 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 paradox still uh persists for me about how what does it take to awaken a yearning for that vision in a community that's largely distracted by the phenomenology of the current uh you know contemporary culture mm-hmm. what mm-hmm. what what does it take no, is 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 that is it sufficient to hold a space? And as Rob said, at least have a uh, clear uh, road signs for anyone who has that awakening to know where to go, which mm-hmm. I would say today there aren't clear road signs for that. So maybe that's the work. Uh, and just to make it available for those who, whose, whose need rises to a level that they need to take action and mm-hmm. then, I I don't know. I'm still working that out because in one sense, uh, you know, even our own teacher used to say not everybody has to do spiritual work. Mm -hmm. Not everybody is drawn to that and that's fine. Um, He did recommend that if you do get involved or if you're drawn into it, that uh, uh, you finish the process. Otherwise, you'll be kind of like a half-baked cake. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, it's not something, you know... it's not something to evangelize because um, it just doesn't work that way.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that that's probably one of the biggest challenges that, that, that I face within myself, you know, that, that I have seen this path um, that has led me to where I am right now. And the work that, that I take up right now, and And I want to try to awaken folks to the point where they might be interested, and I realize well, I'm not sure that that's the way it worked for me. you know when I was ready, I sought it out and and uh and and maybe to be patient enough um uh, to allow folks to seek it out uh, so I'm not sure that 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 it works any other way um I would love for it to uh you know i'd love to be able to hang out a shingle and you know as <laughs> i don't know what you might call it um uh you know a teacher in a, in a contemplative christian community or spiritual director retreat i mean all of that stuff um but ultimately it's people have to be hungry enough to know that they're hungry mm-hmm well uh
2: so but you just mentioned spiritual uh the role of spiritual director, and you you, sp- you spoke earlier of working with a spiritual director I believe you you now act in that capacity if, I, if i'm correct and mm-hmm. and and i'm and um, I dare say that but but actually enlighten me because i don't i don't really know um, do you find people coming to you for help with spiritual direction who are, who are just, um, at that point where they're starting to realize that there's something beyond the extrinsic world, that there's an esoteric or inner work aspect of life. Or are these people, are these folks that you work with already in recognition of that? need for themselves?
1: You know, I would say maybe something else that that there's an awakening enough to a dissatisfaction or to a there's got to be something more or I can't deal with this nagging memory any longer that, that, that I want to have some Greater clarity understanding path of growth, that sort of thing mm-hmm. um, you know so so ultimately, I guess I'm saying that that people are just awakening to that hunger you okay. know as as really the the point that is the easiest to enter into it
0: with people, yeah yeah it's, I think you know one one thing that occurs to me is that uh, in Modern culture, because we have so much information available to us all the time that, um, a directive approach doesn't really work, uh, an invitational approach and a gentle approach, I think is ultimately the most effective that, um, you know, uh, God is a God of persuasion and not of command. And in that sense, we can't force things on people. And when we try, I mean, even you'll, you know, there's lots of spiritual teachers who will have large communities, um, because of the magnetism of their persona. Uh, and that's not a bad thing, but even within those communities, the the fraction of people who are actually engaged in serious inner work is going to be small. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and it, and so I I think that, you know, having, being able to continue to give voice uh, to the possibility and to articulate the possibility, I think is is outer work that we can engage in and then be prepared for those who respond to that uh, voice uh, to offer a, a way, not the way, a way in which people can go deeper. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah, and that I mean, you know, as you're talking, I was both the the voice of Jesus in a way. I mean, the phrase that this repeated throughout the Gospels: "Come and see." Mm-hmm. You know, and the the phrase that that uh, that both the Buddha and I think uh, um talked about: you know, don't take my word for it. Try it out yourself. Mm-hmm. See how the see how these teachings work in your life. Um, you know, that, that, that respect respect this process of, of awakening uh, in folks. And you know, and also that, that as as your teacher is saying, this path isn't for everyone. Spiritual work, spiritual transformation, it's not for everyone. You know, and, and somewhat the somewhat glib follow up to that I'd say at times that that, you know, with with twelve people Jesus changed history. Yeah, that it really doesn't take a lot of people to have a big impact. And that's okay.
0: Yeah. And, and you described, I think you were quoting Cynthia Berzo, uh, uh from one of her recent books about a Jewish story of 36, 36 awakened people, or it's all it takes to keep the uh, uh, universe uh, intact. And they may mm-hmm. not know who they are. They may not even know that they're awakened, but but it's that they have a.
2: Just, just for listeners' uh, clarity, Stuart's referring to the uh, Henry's blog.
0: Yeah, yeah, that Henry wrote this in his blog, quoted uh, this in his blog, and we're we're getting close to uh, the end of our time. But there's another phrase that comes up a lot in in your blog, which I think is a translation from the Gospel of Mark, if I'm not mistaken, where. The phrase "confusion giving way to wonder" hmm. is uh, comes up a lot, and it, it, it feels it, it feels as though you know this conversation has, you know, and the the the, the story that you told is uh, well understood in that uh, uh, of, of of a process a process of confusion giving way to wonder. So, so maybe, maybe that, that's an appropriate note for you to end on here.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I believe that that's actually from the Gospel of Thomas. Okay. Um, which is, which is great, you know, because it's one of these, uh, uh, books from the Nag Hammadi that was not recognized as, as can, can, canonical. Uh, and yet we've discovered it here fairly recently. Um, though, the yeah, the that dynamic of confusion getting giving way to wonder is as that goes on, it says in your wonder, you will rule over the all, you know, and not in your certainty, right? And and the the invitation into mystery one step at a time that is confusing as, as everything anything could be, you know, and to be able to dwell in mystery long enough to sense it. You know, I was um, aware of a recent wisdom school that that was with Cynthia looking at uh, the encounter with evil and working with the movement, uh, the Gurdjieff movement of the cross, you know, and kind of wondering, what do these two things have to do with each other? And being with the movement long enough that I can discover from the inside out what they have to do with each other a sense of authority, of sobriety, of power that arose within me on level of feeling. And it's like, okay, that's what it has to do with encountering evil. But this, this movement that, that you name of confusion to wonder uh, in the whole arc of the story uh, and the willingness, I suppose, to be in confusion uh, long enough that it starts to reveal itself.
0: Yeah, there's a. Uh, recently, we've been looking at some work of a theologian out of the uh, process theology school, which is the uh, the the school of that looks at the theological implications of uh, Alfred North Whitehead's philosophy. And there's a there was a phrase that really captured me a distinction that that he, he described. <laughs> This process, the, the ongoing creative process of divine intervention in the world of multiplicity, is the transformation of opposition into into contrast. Mm. And as I, you know, here, you know, as you describe your story, you know, there's all these opposing forces that ultimately resolve themselves into this rich contrast, this rich, rich. Uh, tapestry that has many colors, but they're all held together by uh, a unified vision and that's and that that divinity is that unity that can tie all the all the divergent threads together into a coherent whole that when we're in the midst of it is confusing and filled with opposition, but ultimately resolves itself into this beautiful totality
1: yeah well yeah and and therein. Lies the law of three yes you know to be able to hold it in a larger mm. frame, mm. a larger perspective um, and that being the third force that allows a new arising you know and to begin to see the law of three at work I mean um, uh, this is a quick example recently' have been just how I hold this opposition. Of the work that I do uh on my own, and the work that I do in congregations, and how these were just two opposing things, and then suddenly a couple of weeks ago i I realized that that I was holding holding them in a in a kind of a greater space, and out of that arose an authority um uh, that I could experience from the inside out hmm. it was never there just wasn't there before, and I was like, ah. There it is. There's the law of three in action. Um, Confusion giving way to wonder. That's a great way.
2: A perfect perfect, uh, point to end our conversation today, although uh, perhaps we can do more in the future. Uh, But uh, I want to thank you so much. This has been a very rich conversation, and um, it's a delight to have heard your... um, description of your uh, spiritual trajectory today
0: thank you very much henry
1: oh uh, thank you thank you uh, both for for having me
0: thank you you have been listening to the mystical positivist this is your host stuart kudnick this week on the show we featured a pre-recorded conversation with henry Schoenfield, ordained minister spiritual director and icf certified professional coach about the arc of his spiritual journey, the tension between an inner calling and the outer form that calling may take, and the challenges of inspiring modern American Christian congregations in the possibilities of deep contemplative work on self. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussions of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com. Join us again next Saturday.